going for $75,000 over asking price, buyers forgoing inspections, forgoing anything that could be a hiccup in their home buying process. The Twin Cities housing market has a supply problem. There aren't enough homes for sale. But developers aren't building new ones where demand is greatest. Demand for lower-priced homes has long exceeded the supply of lower-priced homes, and right now I would say that we're at a crisis point. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nesterak. Home ownership is the single greatest driver of wealth. And while the Twin Cities Metro has among the highest home ownership rates in the nation, that rate is falling. At the same time, the region has one of the country's widest racial disparities. There's layer upon layer of barrier that are challenging Black households who even want to move into home ownership. This all raises the question, if it's bad now, what will it be like in 20 years? I think the question as to whether or not it's worse depends on how much building we do. This week, a conversation with regional planner Libby Starling. Before taking a job at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, she led the development of the Metropolitan Council's most recent long-range plan for the Twin Cities. It's Friday, June 11th. Libby Starling, thank you for coming to talk about housing today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Can you set the scene for what is going on in the Twin Cities housing market? Where are we seeing the most demand and what types of buyers are having the hardest time finding a home? So we're seeing the most demand really at the low to moderate price range. I think the places or the price points they're seeing the most demand are the really up to under 400000 is seeing the most demand and the most competition for homes. So that's the place where we're hearing rumors of homes going for $75,000 over asking price, where buyers are forgoing inspections, forgoing anything that could be a hiccup in their home buying process in order to get into the homes that they want. So this sounds like a supply problem in entry-level homes. There is a huge supply problem in entry-level homes. Seeing a supply problem in entry-level homes is fairly common. In fact, the only times that we've seen enough, and I hope your listeners can see the air quotes on enough, lower price homes are probably in the years right after the Great Recession, where home prices had dropped and it was a relatively easy time to get into home ownership. But since then, demand for lower price homes has long exceeded the supply of lower priced homes. And right now, I would say that we're at a crisis point. Hmm. So if we're if we don't have enough supply, are we building more of these starter homes or entry level homes? The challenge of building entry level homes or starter homes is that builders have a strange habit where they don't want to spend more to build a home than they can sell it for. And so there's a gap between construction costs Mm -hmm. and what home prices are on that starter home level. 
Right now, this has been exacerbated by the pandemic-related increases mm-hmm. in core supplies. Everybody is tweeting about lumber prices yes. these days. Yes. Lumber is the most notable, but I think it exists for steel for some homes. It exists for drywall. It exists for any of the basic needs for whether it's home renovation or home construction. When you add on the cost of land, when you look at labor costs for construction, when you put all of these pieces together, builders would love to be able to sell homes to at a lower price point because they'd have a bigger audience, bigger customer base. But the numbers just don't work for builders to build homes at the really under $300,000. Thinking about creating more supply, can we talk about what new housing is being built? What what does it look like and where is it? In terms of large amounts of new housing, the the swaths of development, that's happening in what the Metropolitan Council calls the suburban edge and the emerging suburban edge. Mm -hmm. So we still see a lot of new housing being built in, say, Woodbury. There's an amazing amount of new housing being built in Lake Elmo. We see a lot of new housing in western suburbs like Dayton, like Corcoran. There's some in Independence. There's some northern suburbs. Um, Blaine still has some new housing In terms of more affordable pieces, I think townhomes are really the place where we're seeing affordability come in. So for a few years, there were not many townhomes being built, and that had to do with some of the legal environment around homeowner associations. But townhomes are coming back as a way of having smaller homes and affordability and greater density in a range of locations whether it's the older first-string suburbs or the suburban edge, the newer suburbs are all building townhomes. People who are interested in housing, they get really excited about the missing middle, the not a huge tower, not a single family home, and seeing how that could be very helpful in cities and This goes back to the Minneapolis 2040 plan of allowing people to build up to three units on any plot. But when I drive around Minneapolis, I don't see a lot of townhomes being built. But when I drive in the suburbs, I see a whole lot of townhomes being built. So are the suburbs doing a better job of building missing middle than the inner cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul? I think a lot has to do with land prices. Okay. And so in the suburban context, a developer can build townhomes that might have a price point 300000 probably a little bit more, but a price point of 300000 and make a profit on it. Whereas in the city, the underlying land prices don't necessarily make that as viable of a proposition. So there's the aspirations of what urbanists like to see, and then there's the reality of what pencils out as a construction project or a development project. 
why are developers largely building new apartments and not new condos? So there's still some lingering issues around common interest communities. I had to work through what the acronym was. And builders have longer liability for construction defects with common interest communities than they do on either rental housing pure rental housing, or single-family housing. And so because there's this longer liability piece on common interest communities, they have more anxiety about building condos because um, liability issues that they either need to pay an insurance company more than you would expect or self-insure against those construction defects lawsuits. There have been some fixes at the state legislature, let's say maybe about four years ago, that have improved the situation. And so with that, we've seen certainly more townhomes in suburban communities and maybe a few more condos being built. But some piece of this is just the self-protection of builders not wanting to open themselves up to the construction lawsuits. Right. So because if you can rent it out, collect the rent every month, there's demand there, and you're limiting your risk that a bunch of homeowners are going to turn around and sue you, do rental. Yes. It's just, it's, it's a safer business proposition. Is this a big enough of a problem that there needs to be a policy change or a policy there there has been a policy change at the state legislature um i don't know that it has perhaps gone as far as it could in terms of protecting builders and certainly politically to say hi we want to protect builders against construction defects lawsuits is not perhaps the most compelling political position that Mm -hmm. a state legislator can take But at the end of the day, that's where the issue is in terms of does it make financial sense for builders to want to build condos? Mm -hmm. So last year, Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies came out with a report on America's rental housing. And a key finding that stuck out to me is that the share of American households who rent is growing and that a significant portion of that growth is driven by households making at least $75,000 a year. And I think these are households who, on the whole, could probably buy something in the Twin Cities, but aren't. And so I want to dig in with you about why you think that is. So I think there's a range of populations inside that pool. We'll call them the middle-income households who are choosing rental housing. Some portion of those are the people who saw the Great Recession and, you know, 10 to 12 years ago, they may have lost a home during the Great Recession. They saw a family member lose a home and they're still retaining the wounds of the threat of what happens with foreclosure. And so psychologically, I think we're still building back from the psychological wounds of seeing people lose homes at that massive scale. Mm -hmm. Some people in this group, and this is a group that statewide, the Minnesota Housing Finance Agency is estimating to be 
64, 68,000 households statewide who are households of color, who have the income, who could comfortably support homeownership, who have the credit scores, who can support homeownership, and for a variety of reasons are not choosing to move into homeownership. And some portion in the pool of households of color is lacking models for homeownership. Hmm. So for a white household who had seen their parents be homeowners, white household, young white households can say, of course I'm going to own a home. My parents own a home. My grandparents own a home. This is just what I do. For a comparable young household whose parents were renters, whose grandparents were renters, or maybe whose grandparents or great-grandparents had wanted to be homeowners and were simply not allowed to be homeowners, that lack mm-hmm. of role models of successful homeownership is another piece of the psychological barrier. Another piece of this is thinking about um, whether it's looking at people wanting to be economically mobile because of employment or because they are empty nesters, renting implies a bit more fancy-free element mm-hmm. than home ownership does. Right now, we have a housing market where it's very easy to sell a home, perhaps a bit more challenging to move into a home, but home ownership has always had this feeling of being more grounded. And psychologically, there are people who want to be able to pick up and relocate, whether it's within the Twin Cities or across the country. And that certainly is a driver of preferences for rental housing. I want to dig in more into the racial disparity that you brought up. And I know you've done a a lot of work on this. I think 75% of white households in the Twin Cities own and 25% of black households in the Twin Cities own. Yes. And you reported that it's not just income that dis- explains this disparity. So what else is there beyond maybe the generational aspect to it besides and besides income? So income is a piece of it, but income is not enough. Uh, we've done work trying to think how much of the gap between black homeownership and white homeownership can we explain away in terms of other factors? We know that black households have less income. If they had the same income, would they have the same home ownership? And we can look at the impact of income. We can look at the impact of age because black households are younger than white-headed households just in terms of the age of householder. So there are a lot of pieces. Some of the pieces that we can't fully understand because the data are not as good but one big one is wealth differentials. So nationally, or no, in the Minnesota, the median black household has no household wealth, hmm. whereas the median white household has wealth of over $200,000. Wow. And so if half of black-headed households in the state have no wealth, then that creates challenges for what becomes the down payment for home ownership. Then we add in the generational preferences, the generational element where there's no assistance from elder generations on whether inheritance or here's assistance with the down payment, and then add in challenges around even accessing mortgages where there's some evidence that 
Black households with comparable credit scores are denied for mortgages at higher rates. So there's layer upon layer of barrier that are challenging Black households who even want to move into homeownership. What are some of the policy prescriptions to these challenges? So one of the big ones that has been happening at the state, at the regional, at the city level is around down payment assistance. And certainly that's a huge factor in addressing that core issue of differential in wealth. Another big piece is certainly home buyer counseling, working through the entire process and alleviating the anxiety of the knowledge gap that many households of color face. Some of the other challenges that I think we're seeing in particular right now is looking at can households of color access conventional mortgages as easily as white households because we're in a home buyer market right now, as we've said, where if you're not pre-approved with a conventional mortgage and ready to move at the drop of a hat, you're not going to get a home. And so because households of color are more likely than white households to have an FHA mortgage, that becomes an additional challenge and a barrier to being able to achieve home ownership in this insanely hot market. Mm. So given that home ownership is the biggest driver of wealth and financial security, does it make you nervous that an increasing share of middle-class households are renters? Does it make me nervous if an increasing share are renters? I think this has to do with some of the bias of the Twin Cities. So the Twin Cities have traditionally had the highest home ownership rate of any large metro hmm. area. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Minnesota is usually one or two in the statewide home ownership rate. The Twin Cities are, again, you know, one, two, or three, depending on the year, in terms of the home ownership rate among large metro areas. So I think in terms of if there is an increasing share of renters in the Twin Cities area in Minnesota, I think that represents more Minnesota or the Twin Cities becoming more similar to the rest of the country than anything that in particular makes me nervous. Mm. So there are obvious advantages to home ownership. Uh, it allows people to build equity. It holds down people's monthly housing costs. I think of mortgages as offering a kind of rent control for homeowners. Yes. But there is risk. And I wonder if we're putting, if there's too much of a policy emphasis on home ownership than, say, affordable rental properties. Right now, at this moment in history, I think home ownership is still relatively cheaper in our market than renting. And as such, putting that poli keeping that policy emphasis on home ownership and thinking about how we expand more opportunities for affordable home ownership is better. Relatively speaking, I think our rents are relatively higher or more like our peers elsewhere across the country versus our home ownership costs. So comparing that cost of cost of renting to cost of owning. If those even out cost of renting versus cost of owning, 
then I might agree that we're putting too much emphasis on this. But right now, I think there's more of an opportunity to rather than think, are we putting too much emphasis on home ownership, but more to think about how can we expand access to the benefits of home ownership to lower income households, whether that's through the avenues to home ownership we talked about earlier, down payment assistance, or thinking about community land trusts or cooperatives or other means of expanding what we might call alternative models of home ownership. Can you look out into the future 20 years, which was your job at the Met yes. Council? Um, and are we going to be hearing these stories about houses being houses being sold above asking $75,000 uh, with cash? Is it just going to be that much worse 20 years from now? I think the question as to whether or not it's worse depends on how much building we do. So when we talk about how the Twin Cities or the state hasn't been building enough, with the Great Recession, most people paused building. So there's this huge crash in the numbers of new construction. And we haven't caught up from that. So even as we see a fair number of new housing developments come in, we see a fair number of cranes building the new multifamily. We still haven't caught up from that five-year period where we were pausing. And so the opportunity right now is to catch up, to overbuild for a few years, to catch up for that period in which we were underbuilding. Housing construction collapsed for a few years, except for a few market. So multifamily affordable was was the area where we were building. Everything else was not. But as we catch up, as we overbuild to fill in what we didn't build, if we can do that, then I think we can be on a more normal path. But right now, we're still catching up from the aftermath of the Great Recession. Mm. People stopped building, and the recovery in that never happened. Hmm. Is there anything else I should ask you? I'm sure we can keep talking hours. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate uh, you taking all the time, Libby. Happy to do so. Pleasure to be here. The show was produced by me, Max Nestrak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme. This show is new, so help others find us by telling your friends and family to subscribe to Reformer Radio. We'll be back next week with a new show. Have a great weekend.